Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Musibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has condemned the violence in Bintui, South Sudan. And legendary German-born South African photographer Jürgen Schaderberg has been honoured as the 2014 recipient of the Cornell Kappa Lifetime Achievement Award in New York. In economics, workers want an end to South Africa's platinum strike. And in sports news, South Africa's wheelchair tennis sensation, Lucas Sitole, bestowed with a national order by President Jacob Zuma. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. At least 22 people, including three of the medical charity organization Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, have been killed during a weekend attack by gunmen on a hospital in the Central African Republic. MSF and the African-led MISCA peacekeeping force have reported the attack, and officers says the gunmen stormed into the building on Saturday as local representatives and MSF employees held a meeting. This is the latest atrocity to hit the violence-plagued country. The attack has been blamed on the former Seleka rebels. The coup in March last year unleashed a vicious cycle of partly sectarian violence that has claimed thousands of lives in the Central African Republic. Between 100 and 200 victims of a train crash in the DRC have been buried in mass graves. The Congolese Red Cross says this has cast doubt on the official death toll of 74. Many people were trapped for days in the mangled wreckage of the goods train nearly a week ago. The train was bursting with illegal passengers when it slipped off the rails in a swampy and inaccessible part of the country. Officials say nine carriages are yet to be searched for bodies and possible survivors. South Sudanese civilians seeking shelter from violence have been taken from Unity State's capital, by United Nations peacekeepers. The UN mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, has also reported fighting between government and opposition forces in Miyom. The latest reports say Miyom is currently under SPLA control, although fighting persists. South Sudan continues to suffer insecurity and destabilization as government forces battle rebels loyal to former Vice President Rahik Machar. Spokesperson person rather, of the Secretary General, Stefani Dujurich, has more. In Bentu itself, peacekeepers extracted 16 civilians, including one female and one child, from various locations around town and brought them to the protection of civilian sites in the UN compound. The mission also accepted 200 patients from Bentu Hospital who arrived at its gate yesterday. Currently, some 22,500 civilians are seeking shelter with the UN mission site in Bentu. 
South Africa's President Jacob Zuma is calling on religious community to pray for peaceful elections on May 7. Zuma was addressing an interfaith service at the Good Hope Centre in South Africa's mother city, Cape Town. The interfaith service was aimed at praying for peaceful elections and the challenges facing democracy. Various religious groups used the occasion to bless the elections. Zuma called on the religious leaders to refrain from entering into political matters. It's not the first time some voices come from the Western Cape about politics. And I've always said my respect, but also my expectations, is that people of God must pray for us. If we go astray, they must pray for us, not enter the fray. And finally, Palestinian Foreign Affairs Minister Rahid al-Maliki is urging the people of South Africa to continue to support the Palestinians' fight against Israeli occupation. He was speaking in Athlone, South Africa's mother city, Cape Town, last night at an ANC public gathering to celebrate 20 years of international solidarity with the people of Palestine. Al-Maliki says the people of Palestine look at South Africa with great admiration for its peaceful transition from apartheid to democracy. He displayed a piece of paper that he said was a pass that the Israeli government issued to Palestinians. I think you remember long time ago here in South Africa. It's called the pass. This is a pass that the Israeli authorities, military occupation, give to us as Palestinians in order to be able to move from one place to another inside our own territory at certain hours and if not then we are breaking the law and that's the news headlines at 8:30 central african time africa rise and shine africa zola africa amka na unai Thank you, and it's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Doctors Without Borders, a or MSF, has condemned the violence in Bentui, South Sudan. MSF has called on all those involved to seize the killings following information it received of gruesome target killings. A team visited Bentui last week to make an independent assessment and were horrified at what was discovered. Meanwhile, 16 civilians, including three national staff members with MSF, were killed during an armed robbery on MSF hospital grounds in the northern town of Bogila in the Central African Republic over the weekend. Earlier, I spoke to MSF's humanitarian affairs advisor, Jens Pedersen, and asked him what MSF found in South Sudan. So when our team visited Benchu last week, we saw, to be very honest, horrible scenes of, of uh, people having been killed inside hospitals. We spoke to eyewitness medical staff who were doing the clashes forced to hide inside the, the hospital camp compounds as, as the fighting spread across town. And eyewitnesses told us that People have been rounded up, civilians have been rounded up on a targeted level and subsequent killed um, inside as well as, as, as outside, obviously, of the hospital. So it's it really, in, in, in essence, it's a 
horrific level of targeted violence against civilians that we've seen, uh, not only in Benchu, but, but increasingly and more and more uh, worryingly and sadly enough since the conflict erupted in December in South Sudan. Now, Jens, uh, looking at MSF and the UN and how um, both have been deeply involved in, in South Sudan and trying to do humanitarian work there, how has this affected the staff in the region? Well, from, from an MSF perspective, it's, it's affected our staff and our operations on a broader sense that we, in some cases, have had to reduce activities because of the fighting. So insecurity makes it very difficult to maintain operations. Um, we've had periodic and, and local evacuations of our teams. And in some cases, we've, we've of course, also had, had our staff having to flee some of the fighting. So. The insecurity makes it incredibly difficult to maintain humanitarian operations in South Sudan, and particularly because the needs are so great, uh, the lack of security makes makes it all the more sad to, to, to realize that it's, it's so difficult to, to make sure that the people get the needs wherever they are displaced to. Now, Jens, looking at uh, how uh, humanitarians put their lives on the line by going into um, um, situations like what is currently happening in South Sudan, the Central African Republic, um, when these uh, rebels or the people who are fighting see humanitarians, what is their reaction? If they can come into uh, an MSF uh, uh, um, grounds, hospital, and, and, and kill people, what, what, is, uh, you know, what is the message being sent across? Well, of course, it's incredibly worrying that, that what we would consider safe spaces, Lulu, a hospital in, in both the, the case of the Central African Republic, but also in, in South Sudan, is, is not respected. That armed men enter hospitals, target civilians, healthcare workers, humanitarian workers, and patients in some of these facilities is, of course, unacceptable. We send this message across to to the various parties to to both of the conflict as much as possible on on high level, on local level as well, um, and and it's it's of course it's difficult to to make sure that that we and our patients remain safe and as we know now from from Central African Republic Saturday's incident unfortunately uh, this respect was disregarded in the worst possible way and and of course the the, the problem is that it will have challenges and it will have consequences rather for for how humanitarian operations and medical aid is being provided if security doesn't allow us to, to stay and to operate in some of these areas. And now going back to, to looking at uh, South Sudan, what has been the reaction from government um, and the rebels, of course, because I'm sure there should be some sort of uh, um, hierarchy in terms of who they report to, or is it just uh, random people who've decided that they are rebels and this is what they are about? Well, we have uh, good contacts and good dialogue with with both parties, opposition forces and government forces in South Sudan. Um, We have seen, unfortunately so, that 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 doesn't always translate into respect for for the same message on the ground, so to say. Um, So-called command and control is a big challenge among the various groups in South Sudan. Um, But but really, it's, it's, it's difficult to say what what 
goes through people's mind when when they disregard uh, safe places, be it schools or hospitals. Um, and of course, it, it's frustrating when we have a, a discussion as an organisation with high-level officials or high-level opposition commanders that it, that it isn't respected on the ground as, as we see, um, which is, is incredibly frustrating and it, it, it makes it very difficult to to provide medical services. And that was Jens Pedersen, who earlier joined us in the program to talk about the issues in South Sudan and the Central African Republic. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Today is Tuesday, April the 29th, the 119th day of the year 2014, and there are exactly 246 days left in the year. Now, highlights in history on this date. In 1928, British ultimatum forces Egypt to provide freedom of public meetings. And in 1994, South Africa's first democratic elections end after an extra day of balloting intended to overcome delays and confusion. On the 7th of May this year, South Africans go to the polls to vote in general elections. This comes 20 years after the first fully democratic elections which saw the late Nelson Mandela become South Africa's first black president. Channel Africa will continue to bring you news concerning the run-up campaigning to the vote. African Dialogue will bring special election programming every Wednesday leading up to the week of voting. During the week of South Africa's general elections from the 5th to the 9th of May, join Africa Dialogue as we bring you live broadcasts from Election Central in Pretoria. So keep listening to Channel Africa to be up to date about the South African general elections. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The ad hoc committee of the South African Parliament established less than a week ago to consider matters related to President Jacob Zuma's Ngandla residence has been dissolved after deciding it does not have enough time to do its work. It has recommended that the matter be referred to the incoming fifth parliament due to be elected on the 7th of May. Yanni van Rensburg filed this report. On the 19th of March this year, Public Protector Tuli Maronsela released a report of more than 400 pages on an investigation into allegations of mismanagement and unethical conduct in the security upgrades at President Zuma's private home at Nkandla. Two weeks later, he responded in a letter to Speaker Max Susulu, saying he will only fully respond once the Special Investigative Unit had completed its own investigation into the matter. On the 9th of April, Susulu appointed an ad hoc committee to consider the President's response to the report. The committee finally met last Thursday, 
but there seemed to be confusion on what exactly the mandate was. The ANC said it was to consider the President's response, while the opposition party said the intention was for the committee to also consider the report. The DA's parliamentary leader, Lindiwi Mazibuku, said that also entailed calling a number of individuals to the committee. We request that the following persons be invited to give evidence to the ad hoc committee. The public protector, the author or authors of the security cluster report, the ministers of police and defence or the national commissioner of the SAPS, chief of the SANDF, the head of the SIU, a spokesperson of KSAC, and spokespersons of any other relevant organization, entity, or corporation. The ANC's Butimana Mela agrees that these people, and perhaps even others, need to be called before Parliament. But with a deadline of 30 April for the committee to complete its work, there simply is not enough time. And we're saying that to get into doing that work is actually asking the impossible on our part. Even if we were to work 24 hours a day, we all, when we were kids, wanted an extra muffin in our lunchbox. But we're not kids. We can't just take a resolution here, we'll have the president appearing before the, uh, uh, the committee, and then the president appears before the committee before the 6th of May. I don't know what's the schedule of the public protector. Steve Swart of the ACDP says Parliament has a constitutional duty to hold the executive to account. He says the public protector may well be available, not necessary to give a detailed account of her investigation. I appreciate we don't have time to do that, but to satisfy the public outcry around these issues and the controversies, and yes, one is politicking from both sides. That is the nature of where we are in elections. But there is also the constitutional imperative of us as MPs. The speakers asked us to look into these issues. But as some members put it, with only two days left, the committee was already in injury time and it hadn't even started its work. Doris Glakude of the ANC proposed that the matter of President Zuma's Nkandla residence be referred to the incoming fifth parliament due to be elected on Wednesday next week. The term of the fourth parliament expires in few days. The time available for the committee to complete its work is clearly insufficient. Related investigations are as yet incomplete. The matter before the adult committee is of extreme importance and therefore requires sufficient time to consider thoroughly to do justice to it. Accordingly, the ANC proposes that this matter be referred to the incoming fifth parliament for their consideration. A counter-proposal by the DA, supported by the Freedom Front Plus and the ACDP, that the committee gets on with its work and call witnesses, was defeated by the ANC with the support of the IFP. Janni van Rensburg in Parliament. Legendary German-born South African photographer Jürgen Schaderberg has been honoured as the 2014 recipient of the Cornell Kappa Lifetime Achievement Award in New York. Presented annually by the International Center of Photography's Infinity Awards, the Kappa brings public attention to outstanding achievements in photography by honoring individuals with distinguished careers. Speaking exclusively to SABC News, ahead of the awards gala last night, Shaderberg said he was surprised and honored to be recognized, as shown Bryce Peace reports. I haven't got a pension, I must tell you. <laughs> 
So I might might sell a few more of my prints, or, or, or I, I, I have, will have a peace, peaceful autumn of my life. A sharp wit at 83 years young, and after a career spanning over 70 years and counting, Jürgen Schadeberg is humbled by the award. I'm very grateful to the ICP. I've always admired what they were trying to do or doing, uh, uh, supporting documentary photojournalism in, in, in the United States and eventually became uh, well-known worldwide. Um, uh, and uh, I, I very much support what they're doing and I'm very honored to be, be now uh, uh, getting this, this award. Schadeberg arrived in South Africa from Germany in 1951 at 19 years old and would soon become chief photographer, picture editor and art director at Drum Magazine, documenting pivotal moments in the struggle against apartheid. In a way it was very exciting because we were very busy and we, we had an aim in life and uh, a purpose um, uh, to, to build up um, uh, and uh, 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 communicate or form of communication for the uh, especially for the African uh, uh, people who at that time were totally cut off they were cut off socially um, uh, in uh, socially uh, culturally and politically and totally isolated and what I've, we found at the time there was no communication among the people they weren't able to communicate among each other he says being a white person who didn't share the views of the white minority at the time made him an outcast among those who looked most like him. I was fortunate not to have grown up in South Africa and therefore I wasn't indoctrinated as a white person. The majority, and I mean the majority, maybe 99% of the whites I knew at that time in South Africa were totally indoctrinated by the system. And they, although they are to blame, for, for allowing this to happen, uh, but they couldn't help themselves. They, they strongly believed of what they were taught and what they were um, uh, indoctrinated, indoctrinated with. with. Yeah, they believed this. Um, and it was very difficult at that time to communicate with them. You see, we were outcasts. We were, we were the scum of the earth. He's responsible for some of the most iconic pictures of former President Nelson Mandela, the 52 defiance campaign, the treason trial of 1958, and the Sophia Town jazz scene. He remembers fondly how interested he was in the township jazz scene at the time. Most of the, the musicians at the time, they couldn't read music and uh, they played in all sorts of unknown scales. Uh, but, but they made amazing music, very lively music, and I loved that. And it was the only form of, only cultural form where they where could communicate and express themselves with, which was, uh, um, uh, I found that very exciting and very positive. And I'm sure that it has helped a lot to, to, to make people stay alive, to, to retain their, their, their courage. Schadeberg today lives in Spain with his wife Claudia and with his Leica camera constantly strapped around his shoulder he's still doing what he does best. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Now today's question of the day is 
how can we promote the good that Africans are doing? The legendary German-born South African photographer Jürgen Schaderberg is the 2014 recipient of the Cornell Kappa Lifetime Achievement Award in New York. The objective is to bring public attention to outstanding achievements in photography by honoring individuals with distinguished careers. Schaderberg says he's surprised but honored to be recognized. How can we promote the good that Africans are doing? Email us on infochannelafrica.org, SMS us on plus 2782-332-5905, or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A South African Green Crusader has achieved global recognition for his grassroots work that closed down a chemicals dump south of Durban in South Africa's Guazum Natal province. The South Durban Community Environmental Alliance Desmond Dessar is one of this year's recipients of the Goldman Environmental Prize, an annual honor that recognizes environmental heroes from six continents. Dessar says he has always been rallied by the incredible support and fighting spirit of communities around Durban like Chatsworth, Mirbank and Wentworth. In the fight for environmental justice, Minoshni Pillay spoke to Dessar ahead of the presentation ceremony in San Francisco and filed this report. It's called the Nobel Prize for Grassroots Environmentalism. Six individuals chosen for their remarkable work that has challenged governments, rallied communities and inspired millions to fight for a cleaner and safer world. Durban's Desmond Dessar is one of these humbling individuals. Much of his work as part of the South Durban Community Environmental Alliance has centered around chemical plants. Two of the largest crude oil refineries and two paper mills in the South Durban Basin, home to some 300,000 people who were forcibly relocated there by the apartheid regime to create a cheap labor pool for the emerging industrial economy. Dessar's relentless campaigning to shut down the Wasteman Waste Dump site involved developing a smell chart to help residents identify which toxic chemicals they were being exposed to. He trained them in bucket brigade techniques to scientifically measure air quality in their communities without sophisticated equipment. Wasteman was forced to close the toxic landfill site in 2011. Dessar says he's proud and humbled by the recognition. In South Durban, we led the fight for progressive environmental legislation that helped communities all over South Africa. So it's a national legislation. If it was not for the data that we gathered in South Durban, that would not have contributed to the air quality legislation that was enacted in 2004, as well as all the standards that we've seen in South Africa now. But also, more importantly, four toxic dump sites that I've been working on and working together with other people in South Durban have closed down, and Bulbo was the last. So it wasn't just, you know, myself but the community of Chatham, and for that I'm ever grateful and thankful. Anti-fracking campaigner Jonathan Deal was one of last year's recipients. Deal and his Treasure the Karoo Action Group led a group of scientists, legal experts and volunteers to deliver a report to President Jacob Zuma, calling for a moratorium on fracking. 
Deal says the award that has since recognized 173 people in 25 years increases the exposure that these types of environmental campaigns need. It makes one encouraged in terms of this type of fight. Probably one of the highlights of that trip was meeting President Obama in his office. I had long, long admired him, so it was on my bucket list. It certainly opened a lot of doors in the environmental community and the and governments around the world, particularly in the United States. Deal's intense knowledge of the Karoo convinced him that a petroleum giant's plan on shale gas exploration in the area needs to be investigated in detail and in consultation with surrounding communities. Fracking would require large quantities of water that's currently not available in the area. He calls the idea of fracking a wolf disguised in sheep's clothing. It is being sold as something that will bring great economic benefits and jobs to this country. What we're seeing in the United States is a far cry from what is claimed by many world governments, including our own, in terms of jobs, benefit to the economy, energy, and quite frankly, when I say it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, I mean exactly that. If it goes ahead in this country, it is going to benefit a small group of people at the top of the food chain. The poor people in this country that have been promised jobs and all of these benefits are not going to see that wealth trickling down into their hands and that is one of my great concerns. Durban-born Desmond Dessau says the decision of large conglomerates always impacts on the poorer communities the most. He says he draws his inspiration from his family and these very people and says this recognition will give all of them the boost that environmental activism needs in the South Durban Basin. A seven-year-old child that was diagnosed with leukemia in Nearbank opened my eyes to a lot of things in the world and showed me that we need a center for the youth of tomorrow. That's what we all strive for every day, that we can breathe in clean air, that we can have clean running water, and we strive for that we can have soil, that we can plant our fresh vegetables that is not contaminated. Other remarkable recipients include Ramesh Agarwal from India that organized villages to demand their right to information about industrial development projects and shut down one of the largest proposed coal mines in Chhattisgarh. And Seren Gazrayan from Russia, whose work highlighted the illegal use of federally protected forest land along Russia's Black Sea coast near the site of the 2014 Winter Olympics. The message of these green crusaders rests on one key belief amongst others, that ordinary people from ordinary communities can and will be the ones to save the planet. Minoshni Palay at Durban. The headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. The United Nations and the U.S. condemned death sentences handed to 683 alleged Islamists, including Muslim Brotherhood leader Muhammad Badi in Egypt. At least 22 people, including three of the medical charity organization MSF, have been killed during a weekend attack by gunmen on a hospital in the Central African Republic. And Palestinian Foreign, Minist- Foreign Affairs Minister Rihad al-Malaki urges the people of South Africa to continue to support the Palestinians' fight against Israeli occupation. Those are the stories making headlines. Today, in 2005... 
The UN peacekeepers sexually abused and exploited local women and girls in Liberia, a UN spokesperson reports. Allegations that were found to be substantiated in Liberia are the latest to be leveled against UN peacekeepers who had been accused of sexually abusing the very people they were sent to protect in missions from Bosnia and Kosovo to Cambodia, East Timor and Congo. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa Rise and Shine. Youth across many parts of Africa have renewed their resolve to work towards a politically stable and war-free Africa. The group met in Johannesburg, South Africa late last week. Africa's youth make up 60% of the continent's population. Sakina Kamwendo caught up with the director for the African Monitor, Namsa Mnigi Mangaliso, and asked her from which countries did the youth come from. Well, um, these are youth activists that belong to a campaign called Voice Africa's Future. And there are 10 countries that are participating in it, ranging from Burkina Faso, Ethiopia, to Uganda, Kenya, Zambia, Botswana, and South Africa was one of the countries as well. And then they are, of course, looking at very uh, weighty issues, you know, resolving uh, to have a politically stable and war-free Africa. And we've seen uh, politicians for hundreds of years failing to do just that. So, you know, what are some of the, uh, the things that came out of the workshop that the youth were suggesting in order to make this a reality? Well, I mean, just like you can hear from the name of the campaign Voice Africa's Future, I think this initiative came out of a real concern that while we are celebrating the growth of Africa's economies, there is not much that's happening to change people's lives. And when we're talking about people's lives in this continent, we're talking majority under 35, as you've said in your statistic over um, just over 60% are under the age of 35. And this group came together saying there's a process that's going on in Africa right now, which is called Vision 2063, mm. where Africa is trying to come up with an agenda for its development. At the same time, the United Nations and all the countries belonging to it are re-evaluating the Millennium Development Goals. Mm. The Secretary General two years ago issued a global call for civil society and other development stakeholders across the board to tell the United Nations General Assembly what the new set of Millennium Development Goals, which will be adopted in 2015, should look like. So these young people came together and said they have the power to consult other youngsters in Africa. And in the last 12 months, they've spoken to over 77,000 young people. And the issue of a peaceful, united Africa that owns its development agenda came right at the top of the priorities that they raised. I think there's a realization that the leadership in Africa has not prioritized the issues around peace and security. And those issues are completely linked with issues of economic inclusion. And so that issue as well came up as one of the priorities that by and large, um, young people across the continent feel systematically excluded from economic participation. And this goes beyond employment creation. It's also about um, saying, how do we create systems that enable young people to be 
active agents and catalysts for growth and production in this continent? How do we ensure that they own productive assets like mm. land, like financing? How do we ensure that they have the kind of knowledge that enables them to perform in today's modern markets? And one of the things that really excited me just watching this process come together over the last 12 months was the sense of ownership that you can see as they talk. I think there's a realization that the future of this continent is in their hands and that they have a real responsibility to be speaking quite loudly, both to African governments but also to global governments and saying issues like inequality and environmental degradation have to come to an end if we're going to have a stable future. That was Director for African Monitor Namklam Nigi Mangaliso speaking to Sakina Kamwendo. The Eastern Africa Oil, Gas and Energy Conference officially opened in the Kenyan capital Nairobi yesterday with more than 400 delegates taking part. They are representing some 60 oil, gas and energy international companies. Channel Africa's James Shimangula attended the first of the three-day conference and prepared the following report. South Atlantic Petroleum Sapetro, a Nigerian-based oil and gas exploration and production company, is one of the companies represented in Nairobi at the conference that opened Monday. Sapetro's general manager in its commercial section is Uzoma Echegri. Echegri shed light on the measures that his company has put in place to protect the environment and the people in Nigeria, Republic of Benin, Madagascar and Mozambique where they operate. Before we embark on any projects, we do environmental impact assessments of the impact that our projects will have on the environment, even the social economic impacts also. So when we do this, we have mitigating factors. We put in place measures to ensure that there are no adverse effects on the communities, on the environment, and the society at large. I also asked Echegri to disclose how close his company is to the local communities and how local people in areas where his company drills or explores for oil benefit. We embark on projects, education, providing infrastructure, water wells, providing uh, parks for schools, and even sending them out to schools also. We provide more and more water wells. We have also embarked on education, you know, teaching people how to maintain good hygiene. Most of them don't understand what's going on the oil and gas and what it involves so we try to like educate them so that they have a better understanding and see that the operations that we are carrying out don't have any negative effect on their fishing business which is the primary business of people who are closest to our areas of operation. In addition to that, I mean, just to ensure that we don't um, have a negative impact on um, the fishing, fishing communities, we also employ um, fishing observers who continue to monitor the effect of our operations. Also at the conference to represent Sapetro Oil, Gas and Energy Company is Glenn Pennyfield, its exploration manager who reflected on the significant aspects of the company in Nigeria, Mozambique, and Republic of Benin. In addition to our established production in Nigeria, we are aggressively exploring frontier basins. Unlike many, many companies that have uh, blocks here and there in Africa, we've actually gone into completely previously unexplored areas with no drilling whatsoever. 
areas that are extremely large that represent substantial parts of whole new geologic frontiers. For instance, the Deepwater Mozambique Channel. Uh, we collect the basic data from satellites, from uh, seismic surveys. We synthesize that um, in order to create a picture which will ultimately be attractive to um, major partners that may want to come into an entirely new geologic province. So we're not looking for crumbs. Uh, Sepetro is actually looking for major frontier discoveries as our discoveries in, in Nigeria were, the OML 130 block. We're looking to repeat that kind of very large-scale success in uh, other areas in Africa. Which part of Nigeria? Our operations are in far south offshore Nigeria bordering the joint development zone. In Benin we're operating in a, in a nearshore uh, shallow water environment uh, attempting to redevelop a field that was developed for a number of years, a semi-field, and then abandoned as water uh, production increased. We're partnering with the government of Benin to try to make them an oil-producing country again as they stopped being, I guess, about 15 years ago or so when uh, uh, Saga Petroleum left the country. So we're going back in there to extract the remaining value from that discovery uh, for the benefit of the Benin Wa. That was Glenn Pennyfield, Operations Manager of Sapetro Oil, Gas and Energy Company. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The representative of the United Nations Secretary-General in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Martin Kobler, says only the private sector can rapidly promote the country's development. This happened as Kobler met with actors of the mining sector. They asked him to create more peace, security and stability around the mines for them to do their business with safety. Jean-Noël Bamweze has more. The UN General Secretary representative here in the Democratic Republic of Congo wanted indeed to know exactly what does the private sector expect from the UN mission here, MONUSCO. During his meeting with actors operating in the mining sector, Martin Kobler told them more businessmen should invest here since he remains convinced that only the private sector can rapidly promote DRC's development. That's why he called on more foreigners to think about investing in this country in order to contribute to its development and on their side, the miners he met with told him MONUSCO should create more climate of peace, security and stability around the mines. But really, the representative of the UN mission here remains confident when it comes to the contribution of the private sector to this country's development. Martin Kobler. It's only the private sector, small, medium-sized enterprise but also the big investors in the mines in South Africa has mining companies who want to invest here and who already invested here. So um, they had to tell me what do they expect for Monusco to do. Now the first question was you create please the stability and the security in particular around the mines because you have the means to do it. Second, it's very important to create the framework conditions that private investment pays. So I'm just now in the in the in the state of fact finding here. What do the pri- what does the private sector expect from Monusco? What can we do for them to facilitate investments? I am convinced that only the private sector can rapidly promote the country. 
the donors take some time, the state also takes some time. It's important to improve infrastructure, it's important also to improve the educational system. An important number of inhabitants of the Democratic Republic of Congo is made by young people and most of them are jobless. The UN mission here believes in more investment means more jobs. The meeting with actors of the mining sector came after Monusco boss met with the Congolese authorities to whom he explained the importance of the private sector in cooperation, especially small and medium-sized industries that help reducing the jobless rate. Once more, Martin Kobler explains. I see many foreign workers here. Why do we have workers from the Philippines? Why are there workers from Thailand, from China in this country? Why not having Congolese to do the job, but they need to be very well trained. Uh, these kind of questions we have to go much more into detail. Security and uh, stabilization of the areas, but then also the tax system, the conditions for investment, to make it favorable, to make it, to really give incentives for private investors to invest. I was in contact with the government with the same messages. It's very important to incorporate the private sector here for investment, because as the example of many countries show, small and medium-sized industries, they provide the employment for many people. And 50% of the population of Congo is below the age of 18, and 75% of the population below the age of 13. This is the future generation. They must have jobs here. And indeed, the United Nations mission here has said it's busy working to neutralize all the armed groups operating in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamoise, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. It's exactly 8.45 Central African time and Tabi Saluhu goes up next with our economics update. Lonman Platinum Mine in Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province says more than 60% of its 28,000 employees want an end to the three-month strike and return to work. Lonman and the other two major platinum mining companies last week offered workers a total guaranteed package of slightly over $1,000 by July 2017. The union, leading the strike AMCU on Friday, said its members had rejected the offer. However, the union says it's still consulting with its members. Meanwhile, Lonmen has embarked on a campaign to communicate its offer directly to employees, including sending them SMSs. Lonmen's executive vice president for communications, Lerato Mulebazi, says how they'll expand, rather explains how they'll expand the campaign. We are using all communication avenues available to us. We're using radio, we're using television, we're using newspaper campaigns, and we're also going to be going into areas where our employees live. So the idea really is is so that our employees know exactly what the offer is. They are employees first, remember, before they are union members. And it is our responsibility to communicate these messages through to them. We cannot guarantee a safe passage for them. If they want to come back to work, they've got to indicate to their union crew. South Africa's Basic Education Department says it's deeply concerned about the reported cash for jobs scandal, which allegedly involves members of teachers' union SATU.
The Teachers' Union has denied any involvement in the scandal and has called on anyone with evidence that its members are involved in the scandal to come forward. A weekend newspaper reports that Satu officials are selling senior education positions to teachers in KwaZulu-Natal, Northwest and in Nimpopo province for a minimum of $3,000. The report says the alleged promotions for cash racket has led to scores of illegal appointments across the country. The department's Elijah Mlanga says strong action will be taken against the culprits. Yes, we have heard about those things. Not only that, but as I'm saying, in 2006, we received evidence. People brought the evidence to us, and that's why the person was uh, apprehended. And on the other issues that it was just allegation, and those allegations were not uh, uh, were not proven. Uh, and clearly, it is that uh, where there's no evidence, you are unable to unearth whatever is happening on the ground. Zimbabwe's gross domestic product is expected to grow by 3%, dragged by headwinds from the global economy, low investments and weak growth of the mining sector. That's according to the World Bank's Zimbabwe Economic Briefing for April 2014. The bank says Zimbabwe's 2013 growth rate has declined to an estimated 1.8%. It says that the carryover effects of the 2013 slowdown are also likely to weigh down on 2014 growth. The World Bank says agriculture in Zimbabwe is expected to rebound by 7.3% this year. Terrorist threats and wildlife poaching have hurt Kenya's tourist industry for a second year in a row last year, with the number of visitors slumped 11%. According to newspaper reports, the tourist arrivals declined to $1.9 million in 2013, down from $1.23 million the year before. Earnings from the tourism sector also dropped, falling 2% to $1.6 billion. Tourism is a crucial part of Kenya's economy. According to the most recent figures from 2011, the sector directly or indirectly accounts for 14% of economic output and roughly 12% of the workforce. Indicators the Sawa. The US dollar trades at 1063 South African Rand, 67 Botswana Pula, 625 Zambian Quechas, 59 British pounds, 72 Euro, Gold 1294 dollars, Platinum 1410 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude on 865 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Msibudi Makura up next with the sports update. Thank you, Lulu. Starting off with tennis news, South Africa's wheelchair tennis sensation Luca Sitole has been bestowed a national order by the country's president, Jacob Zuma, on Monday at the union buildings in the country's capital, Pretoria. Sitole received the order of Ikamanga bronze from President Jacob Zuma in recognition of his outstanding achievements in wheelchair tennis, which included becoming the first African to win the U.S. Open in 2013. Sitole says this honor will remind him of how far he has come. This is definitely going to be a booster for me uh, in my life, <laughs> not on, on, on tennis only, but also in my life, you know, because this is something which uh, is going to keep reminding me that I'm a South African, you know, which uh, is going to keep me believing that uh, I can break those boundaries. 
Meanwhile, the airport's company, South Africa SO Open, gets underway this morning at Ellis Park. Lucas Sitola and Khotadzo Munjani are, will head into today's airport's company, South Africa SO Open, more determined than ever to claim a home victory after their losses in the finals of the Gauteng Open on Sunday. Munjani was beaten 4-6-6-2-6-2 by German world number one Sabine Allerbrook, while Sitala lost 6-2-6-1 to American world number one David Wagner in the finals. On to hockey news, South Africa's women's hockey team aged the United States to one in their second match of the Champions Challenge in Glasgow, Scotland on Monday. The win is a welcome one, backing up Sunday's 2 all draw with Ireland to put the South Africans in a commanding position. The world number 11 ranked South Africans now have a handy four points from two matches ahead of their final pool B match against 14th ranked Spain on Wednesday. Player Lillian Duplessis says they showed incredible fighting spirit against the Americans. Coming back from 1-0 down, it just shows how much character we have and it's that fighting spirit. And that is what we need to and want to bring every single game. On to football news, Gordon Eggerson, the head coach of the South Africans men's senior team, says he's pleased with the draw for the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers after South Africa were drawn in Group A alongside defending champions Nigeria. The draw was conducted at the Confederation of African Football Headquarters in Cairo, Egypt, this past weekend with Sudan joining South Africa and Nigeria. South Africa's Group A will be completed by the winners of a preliminary tie involving Congo Brazzaville, Namibia, Libya and Rwanda. The 30th edition of the AFCON tournament will be played from the 17th of January and conclude on the 8th of February. The final draw for Morocco 2015 will be held in Rabat, Morocco on the 26th of November after the completion of the qualifying rounds which take place between September and November with two qualification games to be played per month. Meanwhile, Burkina Faso head coach Paul Pats has also reacted with satisfaction to the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations qualifying draw, but urged his team to be careful against Angola and Gabon. And finally, in Commonwealth Game News, Khotso Mokwena, South Africa's long jump and triple jump athlete, believes he can still qualify for the 2014 Commonwealth Games set for Glasgow, Scotland. The showpiece takes place from the 23rd of July to the 3rd of August. Mokwena says he can still qualify for the global showpiece at the Doha meet. Yeah, of course, I can still make it for the Commonwealth. I mean, uh, only the top five in the Commonwealth, only if you are placed in the top five in the Commonwealth, you are able to go. I will be well, well placed on that. Uh, I should be able to qualify in, in, in Doha. I think I still have huge capability uh, in doing well. I mean, I was only young when I jumped well. And I have been doing some drills for the triple jump in the past few years. I've just not been competing in it. Well, those are your sports news at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Doctors Without Borders or MSF has condemned the violence in Bentui, South Sudan. And legendary German-born South African photographer Jürgen Schaderberg has been honoured as the 2014 recipient of the Cornell Kappa Lifetime Achievement Award in New York. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Bumgard, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for, for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 41-meter band to far west Africa is Aya with As a Woman. As a woman, I've learned to give without receiving. As a woman, I've been told my place is in the kitchen. As a woman, I've worked hard for my men to get all the glory. As a woman, I've sacrificed for all those around me. As a woman, when I love, I love completely. As a woman. I bring joy to all of those around me Cause I love and I care And I'll always be there for you as a
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. In the headlines, the UN and US criticize Egypt after 683 Brotherhood members were sentenced to death. Peacekeepers extract civilians from the violence in Bintu in South Sudan and the first African Water Summit opens in Lusaka. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The United Nations and Washington have condemned death sentences handed to 683 alleged Islamists, including Muslim Brotherhood leader Muhammad Badi. The court in the southern province of Minyan, Egypt, sparked an international outcry with its initial sentencing last month amid an extensive crackdown on supporters of ousted Islamist President Mohamed Morsi. The United States has called on Egypt to reverse the court decision. UN Gen- uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon spokesperson.